Hello friends, I'm Ashish Tabari, founder and CEO of Axemize. To our new listeners, welcome, and to our old ones, welcome back. I've got a very interesting person in-house today, and I say interesting because he's doing a lot of new stuff that a lot of us may not be familiar with, and it has to do with design, it has to do with languages, and it has to do with verification. So friends, I have today Steve Hoover, CEO of Redwood EDA. Hi, Steve. Today hey, Ashish. Yeah, thanks podcast. for having me on your podcast. Oh, pleasure, man. To be here. We've been trying to get you for some time, and uh, I'm so thankful that you uh, could find some time. And start. yeah, it's been nice. Uh, it's been nice talking with you and learning about what you're up to. I'm really excited about it. Great. So, Steve, before we get into what you're doing, I want to just take a step back and understand a little bit about your background, about some of the fascinating things you've been doing, what was the journey, where were you born, um, just so that we get an idea, um, why the hell are you doing what you're doing? You what know? makes me tick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my background, I'll try to be brief about it. It's not uh, not the most exciting thing we can talk about today. It's a pretty typical engineering background. Uh -huh. You know, I, I grew up with interest in math and science and was sort of uh, leaning toward engineering before I knew what the word meant. Um, and uh, you know, in school, I think I really ended up focusing on computer engineering because I realized that no matter what my focus was in school, I would end up programming. I would end up using computers and I wanted to understand what it was that I was using. So that remained my focus. Um, I uh, basically escaped out of a PhD program at the University of Illinois with a master's degree. I see. Um, and and went to digital equipment, working on uh, alpha microprocessors. And, uh, you know, that was really exciting, working on the deck uh, alpha. Yes. Um, you know, We've very much about... focused on performance, pushing yeah. the envelope. Uh, yeah. Who cares about power? Well, apparently the industry does. <laughs> but, uh, and then through acquisitions to Compaq and to Intel. Right. Um, so right. most of my career was with Intel. I see. Um, and so where were you based? Kind of, um, where you based in Intel? In uh, so I've been on the East Coast, East Coast um, Intel, Hudson, Massachusetts. Oh, I see. Cool. And uh, <laughs> kind of jumped from Hudson to Shrewsbury with the Compaq acquisition, and then right back to where I was at uh, Intel, um, back in the same building in Hudson, Massachusetts, which was a, a rather I don't know, it felt like a, a regression going back to the same site it was at several years earlier. But um, so I kind of went from CPU core outward into memory interface, uh -huh. uh, cache coherence logic, system right. logic. Right. Uh, the last role that I had with Intel was uh, as the, the lead logic design of uh, one of their high performance switches. Um, you know, Intel's been getting into uh, network architecture and uh -huh. yeah. um, high-performance computing Yeah, yeah. Um, with the acquisitions of Cray and uh, QLogic. So right. I worked with those teams. Right, right. So um, most of your career has been very much in the area of microprocessors. I mean, I remember when yeah, I was a graduate. I started out in verification yeah. for about five years and then uh, focused on logic design, microarchitecture. Right. I think when, when I was coming out of school and going into college and so on, everybody just talked about hardware as a microprocessor, and that was the only thing that people thought yeah. was driving a chip. But now yep. we have GPUs, we have videos, we have special networking yeah. designs. But it's fair to say that a lot of early 
innovation, and I mean early in the sense of um, last three decades or so, has been predominantly dominated by mobile computing and, and videos and, and GPUs and the like. But anything before that has been predominantly microprocessors, whether it was the IBM yeah, or CPUs. Intel. And in school, you know, that's what we learn. Um, and it, it's a good focus for education, but I think a lot of students don't realize how much more there is to microarchitecture than just CPU architecture. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I didn't even hear the word microarchitecture in my undergraduate days. So Steve, how long have you been with the industry um, before you actually moved into a startup? I was in industry close to 20 years um, before I kind of left that and uh, started doing my own thing. I mean, I think what motivated you know me leaving and starting up Redwood EDA was, I mean, even in the early stages of my career, I looked at the tools that were available and how people did design, and there was so much tedium in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, even at the beginning, it seemed kind of ridiculous that the tools weren't more capable. And, you know, almost 20 years later in my career, we're fundamentally using all the same tools, the same methodology. Um, I had learned a lot about how design should be done. And just over the years, it became more and more frustrating and more and more like I was working on the wrong side of the problem. That's um, a very interesting yeah, comment. I'm not sure I fully agree with you because I'm coming at it from a formal verification point of view. But let's yeah, and I think right informal. The world has evolved quite substantially. You saying, um, and I don't mean to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean these are broad brushstrokes. Yeah, of right? course, of course. But these are perspectives that what you're talking about, and I think what you're saying yeah. is in terms of design synthesis, power estimation, and um, primarily. Yeah, well, I mean. Tools have incrementally evolved. I mean, the biggest thing is we've scaled significantly. Yeah, that's right. Um, but the methodologies fundamentally haven't changed that much, and they're not keeping pace with the scaling of technology. That's right. Um, that I agree with you. And you know, and I, you, and you know, and I know you're very focused on formal methods and and abstraction, and those are the keys to dealing with the complexity, you know, crisis. I'll say that we face with mm -hmm. the scaling that Moore's law has uh, pushed upon us. Right. So, Steve. Um, takes a lot of guts to leave a well-paid job and actually start your own enterprise. Yeah, there's a fine line between guts and stupidity, <laughs> but <yeah>. thank you. <laughs> I think we are all we are all part of the same side, right? So I left a well-paid job to start my own entity. So what made you actually um, say enough is enough, let me now go and do something of your own? Was there a specific trigger or... Uh, yeah, well, I think it, it was that. It was the... Um, I mean, I guess for, for many years before that, I, I knew that I wanted to focus on design tools. And even as a, a logic designer, um, I would often innovate tools and methodologies within that role. But I wanted that to be my primary role because I saw so much opportunity and so much need there. Mm -hmm. But the idea of going and working for one of the big EDA vendors didn't feel like the right path to having an impact on the world. Um, and it's not that I necessarily want to be off on my own, uh, you know, driving things on my own without the support of a large company behind me. But I just didn't see that large company that um, that was the right place to foster innovation and, and uh, change yeah. the industry. Yeah, this, that, that is a fair point. As in, as a startup, we do get a lot of freedom to, to innovate. So let's, let's there's, talk. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that. So let's talk about that freedom side of it. Yeah. So... So you and I have spoken about this before, but for the sake of our listeners, 
a lot of your business is about transactional Verilog, right? TL Verilog. Mm -hmm. That's what you're basically yeah. proposing as a game changer for improving design efficiency and verification efficiency and synthesis, right? All three side of it. So That's right. Um, it's really pretty holistic. And, uh, you know, it's about the methodology. Uh, the language transaction level Verilog is a manifestation of that. Right. Uh, an incremental path to adoption deriving from Verilog. So before we go into what is it, tell me why you thought TL Verilog is something you need. What was it? That yeah, I mean, you don't, yeah. you never want to innovate new language because you're, you're taking on a whole new set of challenges to um, shift away from the industry norms. But Verilog, system Verilog um, really doesn't, have the fundamental basis to support the next level of abstraction, the next, next level of design methodology. Um, so there isn't really a choice but to crack open the language and start uh, introducing new fundamentals. And mm -hmm. the idea of layering on top of Verilog, of course, is to make that as painless as possible to uh, make it a proper language extension so you're not throwing anything away. Um, you're only adding capabilities and by incrementally adding capabilities, you obviate the need for some of the legacy uh, functionality of the underlying language. Mm -hmm. So this is a very fair point. I talked to Simon Davidman a few weeks ago, and you know, he has had a profound impact on the design of Verilog and system Verilog languages. And one thing that he said to me, I remember quite vividly saying, no language is perfect. None of these two are perfect either. They have their shortcomings, but People should not just give up on these and go and invent completely new languages. They should mm -hmm. add value and, and fill up those shortcomings. And I think what you're saying is TL Verilog is achieving that. And potentially it may actually go in the standard of Verilog at some point. Am I? Yeah, I certainly hope, you know, that it does. I think at this stage in this development, it's important that it remains sort of independent. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of value in staying true to the vision and driving it in a, a sort of a small scale before it takes on the, the oh, overheads yeah. associated with the standards body and all those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah. So oh. I think it's following a natural progression. Um, but hopefully, you know, it, it as it becomes uh, more broadly used and accepted, uh, certainly it needs to go through those steps. So I'm not sure we still know why you made the choice of going down the path of transactional Verilog. So what is it that you're solving what is the exact yeah, so, problem? Yeah. Right. I mean, fundamentally, the, uh, you know, as you and I have talked about, abstraction is key. Yeah. And this is really about incorporating abstraction into the design process um, in a, a productive way. And it's about the design process, not just how do we express a model. Models are always changing. And the capabilities have a lot to do with uh, easing our ability to make modifications to the design without breaking it. Um, so the, you know, if I can sort of uh, make one high level statement about what fundamentally is transaction level design, mm. in contrast to existing methodologies, right? We have the industry, um, obviously RTL is the, still predominant and uh, high level synthesis for the most part is the contender. Um, TL Verilog fits nicely in the middle, sort of a, a best of both. I see. Where you're not giving up control to high level logic synthesis to make decisions about your design. You as a designer still have control at the register transfer level. 
but you're able to incorporate abstraction and abstract context into your modeling. So you can benefit from that abstract context. And it's really about bridging abstraction levels, right? As our designs scale and just become more and more complex, we can't keep thinking about, okay, we need to model at this level and we need to model at this level. We need to bridge the gap between these two models and, oh, our world's just gotten exponentially more complicated. We need another model up here and to bridge that gap. We need to focus on the mechanisms that are going to help us bridge models at different levels of abstraction and incrementally attack the, the problem of building these very complex systems and verifying these very complex systems. So what you're saying is that high-level synthesis is not going to disappear. You're not upset about high-level synthesis being used. In fact, what you're saying is there is value, and there is value in the downstream Verilog compiled models, as it were. But you're saying somewhere in the middle is where a lot of things get missed because we leave too much in the hands of a high-level synthesizer and we lose the ability to apply human-based um, abstraction-driven transactional way of building the designs. Yeah, there's, there's definitely value in high-level synthesis. The capabilities of high-level synthesis tools are really quite phenomenal. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that I am upset about with high-level synthesis is the language choice. I'm choosing C-based mm -hmm. modeling as the foundation for modeling hardware right. is just absurd. Um, and I've even talked with some of the folks that were involved in the early decision-making of high-level synthesis. Mm. And nobody that I've talked with, mm. you know, that they, they actually they've all said, yeah, we weren't really comfortable with that choice. We didn't like it either. Right. But we didn't want to invent new language. Right. And... And that's what I'm doing. And right now, my language is layered on top of RTL as the mm -hmm. predominant methodology. But certainly, ideally, you know, all of those valuable capabilities that exist within high-level synthesis flows um, would be absorbed into this methodology mm -hmm. now with a, a stronger foundation for a language that really is meant for hardware. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I, I get it why you believe there is a gap in the middle. Now, what are you saying is... If, if I wrote a program in TL Verilog, you have a compiler that can turn this into Manila Verilog? Um, Your TL Verilog model actually is not uh, doing any high-level synthesis. Um, so my, my compilation tool, Sandpiper, is actually a code translation tool. is translating your TL Verilog language constructs to Verilog okay. or System Verilog. Um, and it's... Uh, but everything about your register transfer level is explicit. It's just explicit in a way that's uh, more compact and easier to maintain. Um, you would sort of think that by having a model that has all the same level of detail, but the addition of this higher level information about the model, higher level of abstraction, that you, since you're adding more to the model, it must be a larger code base. Hmm. But actually what happens is with this higher level context, so things like proper language constructs for a pipeline and for a transaction, mm -hmm. that context gives you context to specify the register transfer level much more concisely. Mm -hmm. And the modeling actually, if you just do a direct translation of a Verilog design and translate it over to TL Verilog, it generally is about uh, half the size. So this is, this is fantastic. Um, because I'm a big fan of compact code and abstraction. And yeah, there's a lot of evidence that bugs are proportional to the to code size. Clients. 
Now tell me something about how do you believe TL Verilog fits in with BlueSpec and Chisel, mm -hmm. two languages that have been used more recently in the context of RISC V, but BlueSpec has been around for much longer. And right. what are your thoughts on these two versus TL Verilog? Yeah, I mean, um, BlueSpec, and I, I know a lot of the folks that were responsible for BlueSpec, they're a great team of folks. Um, and BlueSpec is probably the closest analogy to what I'm doing with transaction level Verilog. Nice. Okay. Um, you know, it fits into the process the same way. It's uh, more abstract modeling that compiles down to Verilog. Some of the key differences, the transaction level Verilog, just from a pragmatic standpoint, it, it's producing code that is readable, much more readable and maintainable than any other uh, language that's outputting Verilog. Your uh, source code, it's actually producing a file that's line for line compatible with the TL Verilog source. And then it's producing another Verilog output that's things that are correct by construction, which include flip-flops, signal declarations, uh, clock gating logic. So correct by construction um, is a claim made by BlueSpec um, mm -hmm. and chisel and what are the key yeah, ways and they, which, yeah you know they certainly are uh, i have no uh, objection to that claim um, they are correct by construction the the point that i'm getting at is that the correct by construction content is sort of off to the side and the errors that you get downstream are going to be in this this verilog file that's Mm -hmm. line for line compatible with your source code. Mm -hmm. So if downstream you get an error on line 89 of your source code, mm. you turn to line 89 in your TL Verilog source code. It's the same logic expression. Um, so debugging but, and um, code maintainability are two key features that it's you're very important. Yeah, right. And, you know, I mean, that's where the challenge comes mm -hmm. into introducing layered languages. When you add a new layer into the process, it's a right. layer of obscurity right. versus downstream. So did you at any point consider working with the BlueSpec team to incorporate a lot of your transactional log concepts into the main framework of BlueSpec? Yeah, I certainly thought about, um, you know, BlueSpec has a lot of capabilities that are uh, very nice. Um, and I've certainly thought about instead of layering, in fact, if I can step back for a second, um, the general methodology behind the tools that I've put in place is to be a layer on top of an RTL language. Mm -hmm. So they're not fundamentally specific to Verilog. Mm -hmm. um, Verilog is the only implementation of that, uh, you know, the, the output. Mm. Um, it's the only output that we can generate today, mm. but the tools are structured so that we could fairly easily support VHDL if we wanted to do that and other uh, I was going to, languages. I was going to ask because um, just going back to Simon again, I think recently, about two weeks ago, they published a paper with Phil Morby and um, Peter Flake, the whole history of Verilog um, being there. Mm -hmm. And I think in the abstract, I read that they say 80% of the world's semiconductor designs are built using Verilog. But you know there is twenty yeah. percent, which is potentially high-level synthesis and VHDL. So anything you are doing would be relevant for VHDL users as well, right? Uh, the tool support is not there today, but, but the direct, you know it, it's headed in the direction of being able to uh, support right. layering on top of Verilog if there's enough motivation to implement that. It's uh, right. not a not a very significant effort. Right. So I remember talking to you um, some time ago. 
And we were looking at a few examples you were showing to me. And um, am I right in thinking that the most apt designs for TL Verilog would be microprocessor-based designs, things that are pipelined and have... So, yeah, pipelining is, is certainly a very fundamental construct in TL Verilog. Um, it, it's... I wouldn't say though that it's specific to uh, microprocessors. Nothing in any way. specific that is only it's not limiting in that way. What you're saying, that it only no, it's certainly not. And and the value extends to any you know any digital sequential logic sees similar benefits. Okay. Um, the the pipelining construct um, it, it it's supporting a uh, type of modeling. Yeah. Uh, a a type of timing abstract modeling. Right. Right. And it gives you this property that you can easily retime logic uh -huh. without breaking functionality. Yeah. Um, pipeline, you know, a, a, a CPU pipeline is a natural expression of a pipeline that can benefit from that. Right. right. Um, there's also, even if your your logic and, and things in your design are, are following different flows other than pipelines, mm -hmm. uh, that's where the transaction level modeling comes mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. uh, supporting transaction flows. Mm -hmm. And you get the same same kinds of benefits there, mm -hmm. being able to move logic mm -hmm. uh, along the flows that mm -hmm. you're establishing. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so this sounds, this so sounds yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah. So I mean, uh, bottom line is there's benefit across the board mm -hmm. uh, to any digital mm -hmm. logic. Mm -hmm. So I know you ran a course recently teaching RISC-V design using TL Verilog, but how do we get about learning this? So what are the opportunities available and are they, you know, yeah, people have to pay for your courses or are they free courses? What is the current status? Yeah, um, so best way to learn about transaction level Verilog. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware, it's not really feasible to create a business around language. Um, it doesn't make for a very good elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. So, you know, early on starting right with EBA um, and it's about, Productivity. It's not about language, and there are a lot of elements of productivity mm -hmm. um, beyond the language itself. The language is just the, um, you know, setting the the stage, and then on top of that, uh, there's been a lot of focus on uh, building up a uh, uh, a development environment, an IDE mm -hmm. that supports transaction level Verilog and sort of right. builds in the um, the yeah. abstractions that TL mm -hmm. Verilog offers throughout the IDE. Okay. Um, so that's uh, makerchip.com, and it's available to the world. Anybody can go to makerchip.com. There are some tutorials and so on to okay. walk you through the different features of transactional. So the language itself is free to learn, and people can license some of your tools if they were. Yeah, my business model, which works out really well, I think, is basically if you're willing to do your, your hardware development for free, I'm willing to give you the tools for free. Um, so MakerChip is free for open source hardware development, um, but we fuel that with a commercial. I mean, obviously Redwood EBA is a commercial entity. Mm -hmm. If you want to run these tools behind your corporate firewall on your proprietary code, uh, you would pay for that. Okay. Um, but I, I really see a lot of opportunities with the open source uh, ecosystem, mm -hmm. and I'm very interested in fueling that ecosystem with the MakerChip platform. Right. Um, but but back to your question about um, you know, how do, how do you learn about TL Verilog? Mm. Uh, what are the training resources? Yeah, I did a, a training a workshop um, 
with a guy named Kunal Ghosh, who mm -hmm. does a lot of training in India. Right. And uh, we did a really exciting uh, workshop series. The students were just really enthusiastic about it. Um, and I think it was a nice showcase for what you can do with TL Verilog. Mm -hmm. uh, so this workshop, there were two days where Kunal was just teaching general um, information about the RISC-V instruction set architecture and the, the standard tools like Spike for RISC-V. Mm -hmm. And then the remaining three days I was teaching, uh, just assuming no background in digital logic. So starting from logic gates mm -hmm. um, and then teaching uh, TL Verilog tools, students jumped into Makerchip right away. It's mm -hmm. easy to just jump in and start coding. So mm -hmm. as soon as they learned what a logic gate was, they mm -hmm. coded a logic gate and mm -hmm. saw it in simulation. I see. And um, and then within those three days, we had the students build their own RISC-V cores and nice. simulate them. Nice. And, you know, I think that's something that mm -hmm. uh, has nobody's been able to do before. I mean, this is typically several college courses to mm -hmm. get through yeah. learning digital logic and, and CPU microarchitecture yeah, and actually using Verilog to design a CPU core. Awesome. No, this is this sounds really great, uh, compact, you know, few days course that gets you hands-on uh, involved in the deep end. This is awesome. Yeah, and I think, and for your listeners who are interested in that, you know, yeah. feel free to reach out to me. We're going to do another run of that course very soon. Nice. Very nice. So, so people who are listening to us, uh, if you fancy learning the next generation hardware design language, deal with a lot, then Steve is here to help. And um, it's not very expensive either, right, Steve, to get on this course? Um, uh, the course, I think, well, I, we haven't settled on the price yet <clears throat> um, for the second round. Uh, it'll go up a little bit, but it's it's certainly a reasonable price. Sure. So so they can get in touch with you. So let's change the gear a bit. Um, so, you know, I love formal methods. I'm into verification and I obviously I'm also passionate about um, design languages and, and such. And in my PhD, I had a look at uh, designing a high level type system to capture some regularity in circuits. So I can totally appreciate what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do. But in the real world that I work in with people who are used to Verilog and VHDL and whatnot, they need verification done. And that's what we are kind of doing now. I'm trying to understand how can verification benefit from TL Verilog? Mm -hmm. And is there anything that formal verification users in the world could benefit from if the designs were designed in TL Verilog? Because that would be quite a significant uh, advantage uh, for verification. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess before I answer that, I mean, first I want to just say, you know, how important it is, Ashish, what you're doing to promote understanding of formal methods. Uh, I think, you know, formal verification needs to be a very important and fundamental part of the, the, the design process today. Um, so, you know, certainly verification represents a very significant part of the design process, you know, 70% perhaps. Um, and if you're not solving verification problems, you're really not addressing the important problems. TL Verilog, <clears throat> even though it's focused fundamentally on design, um, on incorporating abstraction into the design process to accelerate the design of your hardware. <clears throat> that the benefit of abstraction permeates from the design into the verification process. Mm -hmm. um, 
existing verification methodologies, you know, all layered on top of Verilog, uh, focus on how do you do the verification modeling in more abstract ways and more beneficial ways. But mm -hmm. they're still fundamentally attached to the same level of design to the registered transfer level of design mm -hmm. and you and that's the level of complexity that you need to address mm -hmm. with tl verilog you're able to raise the abstraction level of the design itself mm -hmm. um, and it sort of creates a separation between the the higher level transaction level design and and then the details of how that's implemented so you know some mm -hmm. of the detail in your model mm -hmm. is correct by construction all right yeah well, um, yeah Mm -hmm. And now that your your model is a higher level of abstraction, right? You've mm -hmm. cut off the base of the pyramid, right? If we if we look at complexity mm -hmm. and and the layers of models as a pyramid, mm -hmm. the the more detail you have, the wider you are. And then mm -hmm. as you go up the pyramid, things mm -hmm. exponentially actually get mm -hmm. uh, smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And if we cut off a layer at the base of that pyramid, we're cutting off a lot of the the work. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what TL Verilog does, right? It, it gets you to a higher level of abstraction that your verification models have to connect to and mm. worry about. Mm. And, um, and, and by that, you know, all sort of pie in the sky, high level, uh, arguments, but, you know, in general terms, you're, uh, you're, you're simplifying the verification problem by simplifying the models themselves. So I get that, but are you also able to then generate in the background assertions that guarantee that when these TL Verilog uh, models would be compiled down to Verilog, then those mm -hmm. two models would have certain relationships between them. Is this something you're doing in the background? Could this be? Yeah, um, and maybe I'll, I'll mention one thing in particular that uh, exists to, to try to make this a little more concrete. I mean, it's hard to go into technical details in a, a podcast. It's sure. not the right um, medium for that. But uh, one particular, um, sort of level of understanding that you have in a transaction level Verilog model that you don't have in Verilog is an understanding of when the the circuits are doing something meaningful, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. General in a, generally in a, a, a circuit, 90% of the time, the circuit's just sitting idle mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the, the values might be propagating, the flip-flops might be toggling and whatnot, but it has no meaning. And RTL doesn't give you any way to convey that understanding. Right. Transaction mm -hmm. level Verilog does. Right. And so that's additional information that you can utilize to essentially get um, assertion checking for uh -huh. free. Right. Um, right. So you want to make sure that you're not consuming these values that yeah. you're yeah. you not believe nice. to be garbage. Correct. Correct. That's that's really nice. And uh, this is an area which I also picked up in our last chat. And I think this could be particularly beneficial for large scale formal verification because, you know, we're talking at verifying 32 bit cores or 64 bit cores. That's a lot of state. And as you said, for a lot of combinations we, that are non interesting, um, we don't mm -hmm. really care. We only care about transactions that are interesting, which are mapped to instructions in the, in the sense of RISC V, for example. So anything right. else is besides the point. And the tools should not be wasting time looking and scanning those estates in a formal tool. Mm -hmm. And as a human being, in Maximize, what we do is we come up with these invariants that actually express interesting relationships between interesting transactions and between different transactions. And trying to extract this from an architectural spec is easier, but getting it from a micro architecture 
Verilog is a nightmare and right. can be often rely on human, you know, readable specs, microarchitecture mm-hmm. specs whenever they're available. But what you're saying to me is that if, if we create the abstraction layer at the design level slightly higher, then we can actually tap into that, and which is the nice thing about the framework that you're talking about. So I certainly see yeah, there's, this more valuable. There's certainly you know, assertions that you would tend to write in code today that check properties that you don't even have to check because mm. they're below the level of abstraction that transactional yeah, that's right. that's modeling right. is providing. Yeah, You could still generate them and they could still be proven mm-hmm. in the tool and they might be very quick to prove because they're establishing um, behaviors that are well-bounded in terms of number mm-hmm. of cycles and so on. So Steve, right. let's talk about this open source side a bit. So you mentioned open source earlier and you said it has relevance to what you're doing. And there's a lot that's happening in the open source ecosystem right now. Um, where do you think you fit into this uh, from Redwood EDA point of view? And how? Yeah, many, there's there's yeah. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for open source. So certainly, Risk Five has uh, fueled that. Um, but I think what we're seeing with Risk Five is really tip of the iceberg. Or I don't know. I guess when you mm-hmm. see a tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. it's ten percent of the iceberg. I think we're seeing one percent of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. I think what's below the surface here is really exciting. And I, I don't think that that the Silicon community has really picked up on what's about to happen with open source. Um, and so so let me let me kind of map out what I see happening. And, and this is uh, mainly the motivation for my focus on open source. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at, at open source silicon versus open source software, right? Obviously the open source software world has been going gangbusters for years Mm -hmm. and uh, it's completely reshaping the software industry. You compare that with what we are faced with hardware and there are three fundamental differences between open source software and open source silicon, right? With open source silicon, to do silicon design, you know, first of all, you you actually have to have access to hardware to do your development, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the open source community is not going to tape out an ASIC. That's certainly out of reach. Um, there's actually a lot of focus in the open source movement mm-hmm. toward um, open source access to ASICs. I think that focus is a little bit misguided. We've got FPGAs as well, and those are much more accessible. But still, even with FPGAs, you have to actually acquire that hardware, mm-hmm. and that's a an overhead, right? Any scale. little overhead mm-hmm. is an obstacle when you're talking about the scale of open source contributors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to acquire the FPGA board, you have to configure that board and get it to work with your system to be able to talk to it. Mm-hmm. Whatever IP you're trying to run on that FPGA, you have to interface to it. Um, and it's a lot of work to get that up and running. Mm-hmm. The next obstacle to sort of map out the, the obstacles and then talk about where we stand against them. The, mm-hmm. the second obstacle is access to the software, right? So this industry has traditionally been run by large EDA companies with very expensive software and mm-hmm. very large bulky software mm-hmm. uh, offerings. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to get access to that software stack um, Generally, you can do that through educational licenses, licenses and the like, mm-hmm. um, but that can be a very real obstacle mm-hmm. um, and you have to get compatible software in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
The third obstacle is just that hardware is fundamentally different from software and mm -hmm. it's traditionally been very difficult to develop mm -hmm. hardware. Generally, you need a, a high level education, higher level education to mm -hmm. have the tools to be able to contribute to hardware mm -hmm. where software mm -hmm. you know, is, is much earlier in the educational process. Right. So, uh, so looking at these three, um, what I realized a few years back is that the, um, the cloud providers were starting to provide FPGAs in their uh, platforms. Mm -hmm. And if you have access on the cloud to FPGAs, you no longer have to worry about the access to hardware problem. You've got immediate access. Still at a cost, but a, maybe lower than what you have to spend. Yeah, it's a rental model, mm -hmm. um, which makes it accessible versus mm -hmm. the you know huge overheads of getting access to any uh, mm -hmm. decent performance FPGA hardware. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that addresses the access to hardware. And it's not just that you have access, it's the standardization of the platform. So if somebody develops an open source IP for that platform, mm -hmm. they make it available to the world, the world has access to that same hardware platform. Mm -hmm. It takes away all the burden of configuring your particular platform. Mm -hmm. You just use the platform that the developer used. Mm -hmm. Um, and software, these platforms are are bundling the software mm -hmm. on, on this same rental model. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got access to the software stacks. There's also all kinds of progress lately with open source EDA software. Mm -hmm. um, very rapid progress in that space. Mm -hmm. And then the difficulty of hardware modeling is where you, you know, all of my focus comes mm -hmm. into play. Making it more accessible, you know, mm -hmm. as we did in this course that I mentioned, the students right. are able to learn it uh, very quickly mm -hmm. and get up to speed and do something real. Mm -hmm. um, so realizing mm -hmm. that, you know, my focus was playing into this uh, this third barrier and that the industry was taking care of the other two. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I began focusing in this space. Mm -hmm. um, I spent a good amount of time working with the cloud FPGAs and understanding that platform even though the platforms are available and in theory, you know, they're breaking down the barriers. When you actually look at what the industry was offering, <laughs> they kind of put the platforms in place and said, okay, we did it. You've got the software, but there was no ecosystem around it. No, I really didn't no. focus on no, that. No. Um, and I wanted to incorporate these FPGAs into mm -hmm. MakerChip so mm -hmm. you could actually mm -hmm. I uh, see. connect with these FPGAs. I haven't gotten there yet, but it'll be coming. Right, I and, see. Uh, this so I built a framework. Sense, huh? This makes a lot of sense. This makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. I mean, yeah. in general, it's a really exciting time to be part of our industry because so much is changing right now. Yeah. I feel like for the bulk of my career working in CPU space, the industry was scaling, but not fundamentally transforming. No. And I think there's so much transformation yeah. sort of uh, pent up and due to explode. And I, I must congratulate the RISC V ecosystem and the, the effort that's been ongoing because I think a lot of this is driven by RISC V. Um, yeah, it's phenomenal to see yeah. how strong a movement it is. Yeah, that it, it has become just based on the fact that <laughs> you have an open, open. standard, <laughs> right? There's no patent to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just that fact alone has been completely transformational. True. Um, but yeah, so focusing on these FPGAs, I built a framework called First Class that enables right. uh, easy access to the FPGA instead of a month to get the platform up and running. You right. can okay. uh, mm -hmm. in five minutes yeah. be developing for these FPGAs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Sounds very good. Very interesting. So tell me, um, so I think just looking at the clock and, you know, um, a lot more to catch up on, but in the interest of time, uh, might be interesting to wrap up for today. Um, sure. So if a listener who's uh, listening to us today, you wanted to take off some five tips from you um, to become productive with their design verification and what would be your five tips? Um, so assume that some of your listeners are brand new, you know, graduates, and and fair number of them are experienced professionals. <laughs> so, <laughs> so your tips would be interesting. Yeah, I, I love Ashish that you wrap up your podcast this way. It's a great way to wrap up. Um, I think my perspective, uh, and you know, I, I haven't been doing focused on verification specifically since early in my career. So it's kind of funny to ask me about verification, but I think, you know, the perspective that I bring to it is um, not so much about current methodologies and, and how to make them most efficient, but where the current methodologies are going to be limited and where we need to be looking for a future. Um, so I guess the general theme to my, my five takeaways is to, to have a long-term view, right? Uh, Design projects tend to be very long projects. Obviously, it depends, you know, if you're focused on a, a small IP, you might have a fairly short cycle. Mm -hmm. But generally, you're investing a great deal of time and energy into this work, and mm -hmm. you really need to invest upfront in your verification methodology. So I guess, um, you know, first tip, as we talked about before, use formal. It, it's very beneficial. You know, do some early... Um, path clearing with simulation and and very quickly turn to formal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy to fall into simulation because it's understandable, it's easy. Um, you know what you're feeding your device, you know what to expect in the waveform. But you have to keep in mind the fact that simulation is getting you incrementally closer to your target, mm -hmm. whereas formal verification is reaching your target. Mm -hmm. So where you might not see the return as quickly, um, you know, think about the long term and what's going to get you there fastest. Mm -hmm. So tip number two, um, as a verification engineer, it's important to realize that you are fundamental to the success of your project. Mm -hmm. As we said, the verification is the bulk of the effort. You know, I, I tend to see this um, and not everywhere, um, but I have seen this sort of mentality of the architects to find the big picture, the Logic designers need to design within the constraints provided by the architects and the verification engineers verify what the logic designers produce. It really shouldn't be viewed that linearly and, and like mm -hmm. handoffs. Mm -hmm. You're part of the process. Your considerations for verification play into it. Every mm -hmm. project I've been on, the management message is priorities. Number one is schedule. <laughs> and yeah. if you can reduce schedule by defining a cleaner interface that simplifies the verification task, do it. It's mm -hmm. the right trade-off. Mm -hmm. um, and, and hopefully your management is savvy enough to recognize that and supportive of the desire to simplify upfront. Mm -hmm. um, I would say most of the projects that I've been on, the we always started off too aggressive. We paid the price of being too aggressive and then we backed off. <laughs> Uh, you know, recognize that upfront. It'll it'll make a big difference. Very nice. I totally agree front. with that one. Yeah. Um, let's see. Third, um, 
you know, have the big picture in mind, consider the life cycle of your models. Your model and the utility of your models is going to transform over the life cycle of your project. It's starting off with, with path clearing exercises and focus testing. Think long-term basically. You know, think think long-term and mm. becoming random and, and it, it, you're very likely going to need to have hardware emulation um, verification. I think hardware emulation and use of FPGAs is mm -hmm. becoming increasingly important. Indeed. So planning upfront for modeling that can target hardware emulation is important. And that means your modeling should be synthesizable. Um, it's actually one of the benefits of doing verification modeling in TL Verilog mm -hmm. is it's 100% synthesizable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And planning for this upfront and planning for post-silicon needs. So think about the use of your model in, mm -hmm. in post-silicon. Um, I'm not an expert with portable stimulus, but I know that that's a big focus with portable stimulus yeah. is mm -hmm. being able to write verification collateral mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. can be retargeted and reused. Mm -hmm. uh, tip four, um, you know, again, not a, a UVM expert, but obviously UVM is the predominant verification methodology. Mm -hmm. And one thing I do understand quite well about UVM is that using a text editor and a command line prompts to, to develop UVM and debug with UVM is not going to cut it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult to navigate around a complicated UVM model mm -hmm. and you need tools that are going to help you with that. Mm -hmm. um, these are not tools I'm going to not, these aren't tools I'm going to offer. I'm, I'm not sure. marketing myself here, yeah. but um, there's a tool called DVT from a company called Amik that uh -huh. um, yeah. I, uh, no good things about. I would certainly recommend that. Okay. Um, you know, you need to recognize as an engineer, there's no shame in using tools to help you. That's what you should be doing. <laughs> yeah. I think there's sort of this mentality of the, you know, like the Reinvent, cowboy. I can, yeah. I can, not invented I can do here. it with. Yeah, not invented here syndrome. <laughs> yeah. 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 That too. Um, tip five: uh, visibility into what your models are doing is extremely important. Um, I've always, even early in my career, pushed on methodologies for being able to visualize what's happening in your designs. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and surprisingly, that meets with resistance. It's sort of similar to this cowboy mentality of command line and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. text editor. Mm -hmm. um, people think ver uh, visualization is a toy because it's not it's not real functionality. It's it's an aid. Why do you need you know? But it's so important. You're going to spend so much of your life. Reading something, digging through simulation, yeah. trying yeah. to understand yeah. what's happening yeah. in the design. Yeah. Invest yeah. a little bit in being able to understand it. Indeed. And uh, and I'll use this as a a, a pitch for myself. Um, this is a, a feature that I haven't released yet, but uh, pretty soon I'll be announcing a feature called Visual Debug that you'll be able to use inside MakerChip uh -huh. um, to create custom visualization of your hardware model sort mm -hmm. of behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so instead of turning straight to the waveform viewer and digging through things signal level, you can create a, a view the way you want to see it, right? Bring your documentation to life, um, be able to see how the hardware is behaving nice. um, at a high level. Mm -hmm. And then when your own custom visualization cuts out, you can turn to your waveform viewer mm -hmm. and understand things at the signal level. Very nice. And we've been doing waveform debug for like 40 years and um, it, Don't even get me started primitive. on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 not something I'm a big fan of, but I can totally see why you're doing all of these things, Steve. And I would say it was a great chat today. I have certainly educated myself. I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners not familiar with TL Verilog today would be thinking, 
let's go and check it out. So thank you very I much so. for your time. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it was very nice to be on your podcast. I appreciate the having the stage for a little bit and uh, getting to know you has certainly been a pleasure. Oh, same here. So friends, um, keep tuned in. Uh, we'll be back next week. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Uh, do check us out on our YouTube channel and email us at info at And we will be back shortly. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.